I'm continuing the series that I began uh, a number of weeks ago. Uh, it's a series called The Anatomy of Ignorance. And the focus I want to have today is a, a practical one. And it's about, in particular, the role that uh, beliefs and views and opinions play in our lives, the extent to which they are uh, necessary, as they obviously are in our lives, but the way that those can get us also in trouble, and the extent to which they are caught up with ways that we manifest ignorance. This is the fifth in the series, and the structure of the talk so far and they're all on Dharma Seed. The structure so far has been to first see ignorance as a very um, interesting and powerful way, powerful focus to eliminate the nature of our practice. In one sense, it's very traditional that the root problem of human life uh, is seen to be that we in some ways don't know ourselves. We don't know, in particular, we don't know our depths. And we're confused by the surfaces. <laughs> that's, that's human life. <laughs> and that it's possible to cut through the confusions of the surface, as it were, and find and manifest our depths, which are in a brief way, understood as manifesting wisdom and compassion, or clarity of mind and love and compassionate action and so forth. And that the barriers to that manifestation is that we get caught up in various kinds of confusion, many of them socially sanctioned and encouraged. And so the uh, this guide, this very traditional model of looking at ignorance, again, it's an ignorance of our deep nature. It's a, it's a kind of deep unknowing as opposed to um, an ignorance about facts. That uh, traditionally we're guided to practice in various ways to cut through our confusion, to cut through our ignorance. And traditionally, ignorance is understood as to be interwoven with forms of reactivity that we call greed and hatred, or greed and kind of compulsive wanting, compulsive aversion. That these are linked up. These are said traditionally to be the three poisons, or the three, the three roots of difficulty in life or suffering. And we also have looked at the ways that um, ignorance is both a uh, sobering way to look at human life, but it's also ultimately hopeful and optimistic. That the main alternative is to see the problems of human life as rooted in the presence of evil. And it's, um, looking at ignorance is really a, a different narrative, or it's a different model. And I talked at various times about how in our culture 
some of our institutions seem to be run by the belief that evil is the root problem, especially foreign policy and the criminal justice system. And some of our institutions seem to be run on the basis of understanding the attempt to overcome ignorance, such as scientific research, much of education, and so forth. So it's, it's interesting to look at that. Um, good and evil is much better probably for action films and the Hollywood industry. <laughs> films about the overcome of ignorance probably are not quite as dramatic. <laughs> Hard to know. And so, um, and then we've also been looking at uh, really three main modalities of ignorance. Uh, the first I've talked about is the more personal and psychological, and we looked at that the last two times I was here. The way that we are often driven by what in the psychology of the last century is often identified as our unconscious tendencies, our unconsciously driven habits, our conditioning that's often beneath the surface that we hardly know. And the last time we looked in particular at how to uh, find and access those kind of unconsciously driven forces, which I especially talked about as unconscious core beliefs that we might have. It's very typical ones in our culture would be, I'm not okay, or I'm not adequate. They also could be about the world. The world is a dangerous place. And these are kind of limiting beliefs, often inculcated at early ages, which lie beneath the surface and drive all of us in various ways. And sometimes they drive us to psychotherapy, where we expend huge amounts of income, often very beneficially. <laughs> Not sometimes. I, I don't want... I, I should retract that halfway negative comment. <laughs> and. And just to say that there are many very skillful ways in meditation, psychology, sometimes in the context of friendships or close relationships, to work with these deep aspects of conditioning. And that was what we looked at particularly the last two times. Uh, you know, aspects of our own personal ignorance, often on the basis of what's happened earlier in life, to some extent on the basis of social conditioning. And the social conditioning was the second area that we've looked at, and we've looked at that some in past sessions, and this would be a kind of ignorance that we have because of looking through the filters of all sorts of different uh, belief structures. Some of them we can identify with the structures of racism or sexism or the, the looking through all these different lenses that society gives us of concepts of race, or gender, or age, or class, or level of education. And we all tend to have certain views which uh, we look through uh, in terms of making sense of the world. You know, we could think of, you know, one of the most obvious examples is the conditioning around body image, or models of beauty, or how, you know, how we should look, and so forth. More intense generally for women, I think, than men, but can be very intense, or views of what makes one worthwhile, you know. It was just, I just heard some stories last week of, uh, there were kind of stories of 
people who uh, had lost their work and their whole sense of being valuable. You know, someone loses a job at age 60 and it's very hard not to have that massive social conditioning about what determines worth be very powerful for that person. You know, or for probably 10 or 20 other different ways that we have that social conditioning, uh, which is um, often unconscious and often beneath the surface. And then the third area was the theme of what I was calling more universal kind of ignorance, which is what spiritual traditions point to. And we haven't gone into that in detail yet in the series, but that uh, you know, is talked about in various spiritual traditions in different ways. In Buddhist tradition, it's talked about in a few ways. One of the main ways is that we don't see clearly the, what are called the three characteristics of phenomena. We don't see uh, impermanence. We don't see that phenomena and all of our different experiences are unreliable as sources of happiness because they're changing. And also we don't see uh, so clearly our sense of interdependence. We take ourselves to be, especially in this culture, uh, separate individuals cut off from others. We don't see ourselves clearly in some way. And, there, and, and again, in one of our future sessions we'll go into more, more depth on that. But today I wanted to look particularly at the theme of views and opinions which really cut across all three of those areas. We have views and opinions about ourselves, we have socially conditioned views, we have views about society, we have views about our spiritual nature, we have spiritual views, beliefs, opinions, and it's quite a confusing area, isn't it? I mean, it's almost like we necessarily need views to, to um, navigate the world, but it can be very confusing. What is a skillful view? Am I attached to this view? What, um, how, should, how should I make use of social views? Aren't you know, views important? You know? Shouldn't I have a strong view about global warming or about racism, right? So, you know, what's, and, because we find in Buddhist tradition uh, a very powerful teaching about the uh, limitations of grasping onto views as a way to finding the truth or finding meaning. You know, so it, it can be very confusing because there are all sorts of views out there and there's all sorts of information out there, isn't there? An incredible amount of information and we seem to need, need views to make sense of it, right? So it's a, it's a very, it can be a very um, challenging area how to, how to make sense of that. You know, don't I need a view about myself or don't I need views about society or don't I need views about myself and my own nature or what my problems are and so forth. And so I think what I'm going to point to generally is that um, we all have to have some kind of views, beliefs, opinions, but there are certainly dangers of being too attached to those views. And so the, the pointing will be to how views and opinions and beliefs can be sometimes useful, but how to hold them lightly and how to investigate them. So I want to talk some about the usefulness of views, the problems if we get too overly attached to views, which is always what's being pointed to. And then uh, a few ways that we can practice 
hopefully in the next few weeks, with views, some very concrete ways that we can look at the views and opinions and beliefs in our own, in our own experience. In the traditional teachings, there's uh, both a use of views. Obviously, one can't teach without having certain ideas, views, beliefs, and opinions. But there's also a questioning of too much reliance on views. And I have to say that um, something that I find is that when I work individually, one-on-one with people, probably the most common guidance I give is don't be overly attached, particularly to negative stories you tell about yourself, negative views or beliefs. That's the most common guidance I give, that it's a very pervasive problem for all of us that when we're stressed, we cling on to views, often negative or catastrophic or fear-inducing. Societies do the same. And so looking at views seems like a very crucial area. And it's also uh, can be very much uh, an area where we can see the mechanisms of ignorance involved with views, such as attachment to views, exaggeration, selectivity, bias, um, thinking we have the whole truth. Well, maybe other people do that. Here we are enlightened, right? We, don't necessarily do that. Now, traditionally, there were these strong teachings, and many, many of us know, I think, the, many of the traditional teachings. Uh, they were quite interesting, one, one, and they're often really brought out with humor. This is at the same time that the Buddha is giving certain kinds of views. One of the teachings was a teaching of an imagined situation where a man had been shot by a poisoned arrow. And the Buddha said the most important thing is to take the arrow out and attend to the health of the man. He's he's going to liken the the situation of being shot with a poisoned arrow to the human condition, that we are, as it were, shot with the arrow of confusion and greed and hatred in human life. And so he says, if that person shot by the poisoned arrow started asking all these questions, like, before I have any treatment, I need to know who shot the arrow. What kind of arrow was it? Was a feather um, made with, a, with the uh, feathers of a turkey? Or was it another kind of bird? You know, how long was the arrow? At what velocity was it shot? You know, I think this is, this is the humor of the Buddha. <laughs> you know, and... Uh, I think we lose a lot of the humor in translation. <laughs> but I th- my sense is this was, th- this would have been, there would have been, would have, when the Buddha was teaching this, there would have been laughing and cackling in the group, right? And, and so, but you get the idea. The Buddha says, if you ask all these questions, if that person asked all that question, that person would die. and would not have the relief needed. And so, it's an analogy, of course, or it's a teaching story to say the most important thing for us is to basically get to look at what really blocks us from our own wisdom, our own love. 
what keeps us caught in our patterns. And we should really do that and not spend so much time focused on various kinds of views, whatever they're about, you know. Views about ourselves, views about San Francisco 49ers, views about Obamacare, whatever we might have. Views about um, spirituality even, that we should be really careful about that and, and really um, use views and opinions and beliefs selectively for pragmatic purposes, particularly aiming at our own well-being and the well-being of others. That's one teaching, very important teaching story. A very similar story is taught in this way. He says, I teach views and so forth as tools, as means to an end. He said, they're like a raft which take one to the further shore. Once one gets to the further shore, would you carry the raft on your back? Let it go. In other words, so use them as means to an end. Use concepts, theories, views, beliefs lightly as means to an end. Another, another famous story uh, that, I, that I tell here from time to time concerns a group of uh, people who were called the Kalamas. And they lived at a crossroads in India, which uh, I like to think of as very similar to the Bay Area, or maybe to any place where a lot of people come through. And in particular, there were a lot of spiritual teachers who came through this, uh, this town. There was a town was called Kesaputa, and these, uh, all these people, all these teachers came through, and they had um, very different teachings. And they all, he said, uh, the Kalamas asked the Buddha, all of these teachers, they say, we're right, and all these other people have really worthless, vile teachings. You know, and they all, he said, disparage each other. Who should we believe? And why should we believe you? Right? And very good question, right? Because we may ask that question, why come to Spirit Rock? You know, if you want to, this weekend, you have your choice, if you were in the San Francisco Bay Area, of 133 different spiritual workshops. Maybe more. <laughs> and you can choose them and you can see, you know, and why choose one over the other? Or what, you know, and the Kalamas were very confused and he asked the, they asked the Buddha and this is what the Buddha said, it is proper for you Kalamas to, to be doubtful, to be uncertain about this. And then he gave guidance for them. In your search for finding what is a good view or a good approach, don't go upon what, if you have, what you have uh, repeatedly heard. Don't go upon tradition. Radical stance, right? He's saying, don't believe something because it's simply traditional. Don't believe it because of rumor. Don't believe it because it's in a sacred text. Yeah, nearly 2,600 years ago, right? Pretty radical stance. Don't believe it because of surmise or reasoning that is not adequate. Nor upon the consideration, this is our teacher. Don't believe it just because of the authority of the teacher. 
but rather look yourselves into experience and know these things are bad, these things are not good, these things lead to harm and ill, abandon them when you see what leads to development, what leads to good qualities, follow them. So you get the sense that the views are secondary to what we might call pragmatic considerations. And it's this pragmatic basis of these teachings that probably attracts many of us. That views, concepts, beliefs, dogmas are very secondary. We want to see what is helpful in experience. And so, at the same time, the Buddha was giving views. One of the teachings is called right view. <laughs> how, do we, how do we deal with that, right? How do we... And I think it's if we understand those skillful views, right is a little bit of a Victorian translation, maybe better skillful view. What is skillful to be followed in the short term? And in the long term, the views are like the raft which you give up, which you don't cling to. So how do we look at views and what, what are some of the problems of our views? You know, of when, because the teaching is basically being don't hold views lightly, don't get attached to them, whatever they are, social views, views about self. So what is, what makes views uh, difficult or what makes views problematic? And this is where I think I'll say a few things and I'll give some practices. This is where we can start looking ourselves in our own experience. How do I hold the views of my life? And so I think the, the root um, issue is going to be that in some ways we grasp unconsciously after views. We find security there. We find a sense, maybe a sense of, of meaning in views. But what are, how do views become problematic and more a source of ignorance? I think we can, we can look at them. Um, it's obvious that we often in our views um, are biased. We're selective. We don't look at certain things. We prop up our views with limited evidence. You know? We may have a sense of whether it's a social view, a political view, a view of self. We often have limited information and we can be quite selective. So one of the ways of practicing is looking where am I, where do I maintain strongly certain views where I actually don't know what I'm talking about. Has anyone ever done that? <laughs> okay. about, about a quarter of the group. <laughs> okay. where, you know, where do I seem to maintain a view very strongly, even though I know, hmm, I'm not really sure about this, but I'm maintaining it strongly because the other person's maintaining his or her view strongly. Right? So we want to look at uh, selectivity, exaggeration, uh, we want to look at uh, bias. We want to look where do I actually uh, make, where, where do I find it impossible to hear someone else's view? That's very common, right? Where do, that's where I get attached to view. I often can't hear the other person. And uh, for me, a very interesting experience that I had, uh, I was in a uh, program that I've talked about from time to time. Uh, called uh, Revisioning Philosophy. Because uh, many of you know that I uh, actually, um, in a past life, um, 
uh, ha got a doctorate in philosophy and taught at universities for seven years. <laughs> it was in a past life. And I was in this program which was supposed to revolutionize uh, the whole world of philosophy by bringing back the spiritual dimension, the political dimension, because a lot of uh, philosophy in universities had become very narrow. And it was, people just were looking at uh, very narrow questions, the large questions of meaning, of ethics, of what's the good life, what's the good society had been lost. And there was a very narrow view, and it was very, it was very dominated by a sense that science is the only kind of knowledge we have, and philosophy should just basically clarify, you know, how science works. <laughs> you know, what are the rules of evidence and so forth. So many of us had a broader view. We wanted to, you know, have a uh, much broader view of human life. Many people wanted to bring in more attention to the emotions, to the body. We wanted to look at gender issues. It was a great program, wonderful people in the program. Uh, except that we started to notice when we started having meetings that some people seemed to have pretty strong views. <laughs> we had this idea to bring the wisdom dimension back. Some of you know the very meaning of philosophy was uh, the literal meaning is the love of wisdom. Sophia is the, like the goddess of wisdom in ancient Greece. And, um, you know, philo is a word that means, it doesn't mean love in the strong sense. It's like people, we have the word anglophile or, you know, whatever. That means I kind of really like it, <laughs> but it's not love necessarily in our usual sense. Anyway, um, we noticed that people in the group started to have strong opinions and seemed to be getting into tussles that didn't seem very different than anyone else. And those people didn't seem particularly enlightened, you know. And it was, it was, it was a little bit troubling, <laughs> right? And, you know, and uh, we started noticing that. And there was a member of the group who, who, who um, later became president of California Institute of Integral Studies. Some of you may know Robert McDermott. Uh, and he made a suggestion which really connected with me. He said, when you notice a difference of views, let that be a starting point for inquiry rather than war. That was great. That really clicked with me. So when you notice a difference of views, ask the question, do I feel charged at this moment? What's going on with me? Is it possible I might learn something from this person? <laughs> and... It was really interesting to explore that, to see it was like an invitation with, to take difference of views as a starting point for meditative inquiry. Do I feel attached to this view? Is there something in my background which is causing me to reject this person's views? What's there for me? What are the emotions? Let me really explore. And that's had a big impact on me and I've used it uh, on my teaching, in my teaching quite a lot. Uh, and invite that. One of the practices I'll invite for the next period of time is take this as a starting point. You know, I was thinking of another example. Uh, um, I think probably about 10 years ago, a uh, little over that, uh, I and a few other people did a retreat, which I, I think I probably mentioned from time to time, at Los Alamos National Laboratory. Sort of a social action retreat about nuclear weapons. And we did a retreat at Los Alamos National Laboratory. I remember it was before 9-11. Probably might not have been permitted after 9-11. I don't know. But we did it anyway. And we, uh, were, um, we were given a permit to have a retreat on their grounds. 
um, they just wouldn't, they, they said, you can do it, but you can't use our bathrooms. <laughs> That's weird. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we didn't, you know, I think, yeah. So see if you have views developing from that. <laughs> that. And um, I would, I, and maybe I won't go into that too much, but I, th I think they were just trying to keep it simple, basically. And so eventually the group uh, rented a, um, an RV that had its own bathroom. It also provided shade because it was hot there in New Mexico in the summer. Anyway, but we met with uh, Los Alamos scientists for lunch every day. And we'd get in conversations with them. And it was really interesting. Different people met with the, the scientists and had different experiences. Some of them really got uh, combative and got into tussles like, you know, why are you developing nuclear weapons? And I know that I, I was interested in finding their story, like really being open to hearing their view. And it was really interesting to compare notes. We, had, we stayed at a campsite, and every day we took our RV back to the campsite. <laughs> and actually, didn't stay in the RV, but we camped. And um, we shared our stories over like a fire at night. And it was an interesting retreat, but it was really interesting for me just to see the different ways that we, as people who were questioning nuclear weapons, uh, talked to the scientists. Were we open to them? And it was really, you know, for me, it was really interesting to talk with them and hear their stories, their rationales, their views, which were almost uniformly why it was good to be developing nuclear weapons. Right? Uh, you know, and their reasons were, you know, we're a good country. And if we don't do it, bad countries will do it, right? Or, you know, you can trust us, right? And so forth, and um, different views. But the interesting thing for me was, could we be open to other people's views, even where there might be across an issue, right? And so that's something I'll invite for next week, and take difference of views as starting point for inquiry. Very interesting, very interesting to do. So we want to look at where do I cling to a view? Where am I attached? Where am I selective? Where uh, do I exaggerate? Um, where do I think that a view is the absolute truth? One of the other teachings that we have, uh, both by the Buddha and in later tradition, is about the limits of concepts to actually get at the truth. And the, you know, one of the teachings, we find this in many traditions, is that theories are at best approximations of reality, that they don't line up one-to-one -one with reality. One of my teachers, he said, all theories leak, right? or that all theories or beliefs or views are at best uh, skillful constructions, right? And if we believe in their absolute truth, there may be a problem because it's actually of the very nature of language not to permit that kind of absolute truth. Again, there are different views on that. <laughs> but um, to what extent do we understand language and the limits of concepts? Another aspect of, of looking at, at um, theories and views. Another one which we've looked at from time to time here is that often, as relates to what I was saying earlier, often we have very limited connection with actual data. Or experience. Do you remember the teaching I gave of the ladder of inference that I've given from time to time? Which basically shows how we have certain data, we select certain data, and then we start forming views, beliefs, make assumptions, and so forth. And it's always, always the views 
go beyond the data. The data is always going to be limited. Even the best scientific theory can't match up 100% with data you know, for various reasons. I won't go into the details of that. But we often base our views on very limited data. And we go into all sorts of assumptions and views. You know, one of them, one of my favorite, you know, was taught by Sylvia about her own experience. Remember this, when she was wanting to do a, a Zen retreat? Remember that story? She was wanting to do a Zen retreat. She calls up the Zen Center of San Francisco. She uh, reaches the uh, switchboard operator who, who says, I'm sorry, the person you want to talk to is Steve. Steve's not here. Call back in the afternoon. She calls back in the afternoon. Oh, Steve just walked out. Oh, sorry. Call tomorrow morning. She calls the next morning. She reaches the switch, same switchboard operator, Zen switchboard operator, who says, oh, you know, Steve's had some car problems. He's going to be in later. And she says, I guess this means I'm not supposed to do the retreat. And, she's, and she says in completely proper Zen style, no, I think it just means that Steve isn't here. <laughs> so we see all the ways that their views go beyond uh, the evidence, or they might be just taken unquestionably from society. So it's a very powerful area to practice in. You know, we can, we can look at it. You know, and it, it's also very, very uh, accessible. We can really notice that. So I want to end by just giving a few practices. The first practice is, I want to give three practices that you might do. The first is make a list of your top five or top ten views. Which are, the, which are you most attached to? Make, make a list of five views that you're attached to that, and that you just find in your experience. Which are your favorite views? What are your favorite personal views? What are your favorite social or political views? Are there any that you are attached to? And again, uh, some of these are accessible. You know, as we were looking at last time, some of our deep views may be hard to access. They're beneath the surface. But some, a lot of them are accessible. Second practice is to do something like what I was mentioning that I learned about in taking, uh, noticing a difference of view with someone else and take it as a starting point for inquiry rather than a fight, right? So do, I invite you to do that practice. When you have a difference of view, let your mindfulness light come on. Very, very interesting practice. And see what you, see what you find. Say, is it remotely possible that I might learn something from this person? I think the assumption is be is that, yes, <laughs> you might learn something, even from someone who seems really different or seems just like very ignorant type. So take as a starting point for inquiry, noticing a difference of you is where you have a charge. Okay, where you have a charge, where you're talking with your friend and talking about whatever it might be. Uh, a particular social view, something about meditation. You should really come out to Spirit Rock. The meditation there is so pragmatic, and the teachers are really good. <laughs> or at least some of them. Uh, and see, see if you have views developing there, or views about anything. And the third, kind of related 
practice would be, can I uh, listen to someone with different views and learn from them? And take that as a practice. And that's, that's, there's a whole lot we could say there. That's, so when we listen to someone, it might, not be, it might be listening not just for the words, but what's the feeling beneath the words? What's the sense of what matters for this person? You know, and this is where we really start seeing what's the relation of views to emotions or to deeper values or a deeper sense of what matters for someone. So three practices which I'll invite. First, tracking your top five or your top ten. Second, looking for charge in views and seeing if you can take that as a starting point for looking more deeply. And then thirdly, listening to others with care around views. And all of this is around an inquiry. How do we use views skillfully? Because we can't avoid views. The idea that we can't avoid views is a view. <laughs> and, and if we, and we can actually have fun with this because there can be a lot of paradox, right? There can be a lot of playfulness and about this, you know, like... Um, it's almost like... Um, you know, someone who would say, this is not a view. Remember that, how, how that can get involved in interesting paradoxes and contradictions. So, so even the view, all of the views we want to look at and see, how can I be skillful? What does it mean to uh, work more lightly with the views which I do have? What's a skillful use of views? How do I get caught in views? How do I get, are there some views where I'm totally kind of lost in them? There might be. You know, and some of those might be more beneath the surface. Because you know, there are also views which are on the surface and then views which I kind of hold but I don't even know I'm holding them. So it's a really rich for, place for inquiry and for practice. And uh, again, one of, the, one of the ways that we can unpack this uh, broader sense of how we get lost in things, how, we, how there is ignorance or delusion. We can, really, we can really see that by looking closely at views. So I'll stop here and invite us maybe just to pause for a moment. And I'll invite uh, any questions or reflections of, of any kind. We, we have a um, little less than 15 minutes, so we can have some time for discussion or questions for any of your own uh, reflection, any, any experience you've had with, with views, opinions, beliefs, anything that struck, struck you from our, from our exploration so far. Please, yeah. Well, I was just thinking of a couple of nights ago, we were with friends and I was talking about my experience on being in a kibbutz about 30 years ago. And my husband had a different experience where he, 
I was saying that the volunteers were, none of them were, I was, I'm not Jewish, and none of the volunteers that I was with were Jewish. And he was saying, his volunteers, they were Jewish, and we got into this discussion about whose opinion was right. Like, and I was thinking, i got to go back and find out the history of the volunteer program and that yeah. sort of thing. And it would have been so much better to look at it as a point of inquiry. I yeah. now, I just think, you know, maybe that's true. Maybe my experience was was um, was not was unique as opposed to that. So it was just really interesting how I could have looked at it in a different way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just to have you know, there, human life is just so full of differing differing views. I mean, literally, the view means like literally, it means looking from here, right? It's like naturally because we have different bodies, we're going to have different views, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, please. Oh yeah. You know, psychology has all these views. Yeah. What's helpful for, for people? Yeah. And I I'm confused about this, right? That is there um, like knowing something versus not knowing something? And, you know, what's what's helpful or what's skillful? Mhm. Yeah. Because you have to have, like you said, I have to have a view. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it's a, a statement of um, self-acknowledged confusion about, uh, as a psychologist, uh, there are all, all these views, but we obviously can get caught in views. They can be problematic in various ways, but we have to have views. So what do we do? <laughs> Help! You know, um, I think I think it's pointing. This is all pointing to using views, but really uh, using them aware that we may have tendencies to grasp onto them. We may have tendencies to uh, ascribe to them more validity than they actually have. We may uh, exaggerate. We may be prone to shutting off other people's views. We may use the views to build our self-image. I have the right view on this. I am a psychologist who actually has the best psychological theory that's come along in the last 30 (laughs) years. And and so, uh, but, and and yet, uh, to work with people in psychology as well as meditation, we need some sort of framework. I mean, some teachers purport to have no framework and no theories, and uh, they're sometimes, uh, their students are sometimes confused. <laughs> uh, but they're, they're all different levels, because you know, some teachers could have just maybe so much inner beautiful energy that they don't have to say anything. There are teachers like that, right? It's just hang around them. You know, it's kind of the nonverbal is the most powerful. And, and, and it's actually also, I mean, r- related to this, I was thinking there have been psychological studies done which show that the most important factor in someone doing well in psychological work and therapy is actually the quality of the relationship with the therapist. And that's actually the most important factor, and that cuts across 
the whole range of views. Right? You can have people from this perspective or that perspective. The most important thing is the quality of the relationship, which makes some sense, right, when we think about it, but that's a little bit of a shock to people who put so much weight into the views, right? It's saying, yeah, isn't that interesting? Yeah. It's probably, there are probably some analogs of that spiritually. I don't know. Please. Yeah. negative view of myself be diminished is to take care of myself in very basic ways. Yeah. Like what I eat. Yeah. Like if I exercise. Yeah. If I sit. If I have a glass of wine with dinner or if I don't. Yeah. And, and Thich Nhat Hanh talks about this a lot and I had the I sat with three of his monks the other night and it's just so deliberate the way that they take care of themselves. Yeah. And um, it makes a difference. Hard to do, though. Yeah, so, so really pointing to um, um, how there can be negative views of self, and a lot of those are transformed by various forms of self-care. I mean, it's also, you know, when I work with people on the theme of the judgmental mind, we actually go in two directions. We go partly into really studying the judgmental mind, going into it, mindfulness, inquiry, and so forth. But we also, the second aspect, is basically just cultivating a sense of self-care and love, which can manifest meditatively, can manifest practically. And I think what you're pointing to, if I can interpret it this way, is is really um, pointing to the very practical basis of all of this that, um, which is what, what the Buddha was pointing to in those teachings. He was saying, there are a lot of practical things which one can do. Views help point you towards those practices. You know, you might have a view, self-care is important, right? Or self-care is a good way to cut through negative self-views, you know? That, and that might have a lot to it. That, in a sense, is a view, but it's, it's one that guides one pragmatically. And you, you don't put the focus, you know, uh, you don't say that your well-being is done by trumpeting your self-view. Or the, the view is a, is a support, rather, and the real focus is on the pra- practical transformation, rather than the view. So I think your example brings that out some. So, yeah, um, please, we have yeah, a lot of hands and, and two over here, please. There are a couple of things that are troubling that, that are troubling me about views and right and wrong. Yeah. Okay. There's and they're very different. Uh, I mean, different scenarios, different things that I'm thinking about. One is very immediate, in which a young um, person on the bus wearing a male person wearing right. a skirt was burnt, you know, burned very badly by another young person who's now going to be tried as an adult and, you know, it's all downhill from there for that person. And I don't know what will happen for the burn. Yeah. But to me, there has been a very clear right and wrong. My view is yeah. really powerful around that. And yet, in talking today, it makes me 
want, wish to know what the mindset could be or what could be hopeful at all for the 16-year-old. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think there's more chance for the burned person. Yeah. Actually, in a, even though physically very damaged. Yeah. But hopefully, spiritually, at least the stuff that I've read about his family and support. Yeah. That's one thing. The other thing that's is... What, that's a lot. <laughs> but the other thing yeah. is I work with eating disorder patients, yeah. and I have spent a lot of time in that, in yeah. that realm, which is the psychological and the medical. Yeah. There is a medical piece that's right or wrong. I mean, you know, there's a time when the shit's going to hit the fan if you don't take the reins if that person doesn't want to take the reins. Right. I don't know. Somehow they're connected. So how does how they're does very right and wrong? You know, I guess because there's how does that fit in? Yeah. How, how does, does that, that all fit in? How yeah. How do, how do these areas where um, for many of us there might seem to be very clear right and wrong? Does this care with views means that we give up right and wrong? It could be a question to ask. And so the example given is one that I think happened when I was away. Actually, I read about it. I read about it. Um, I kept in touch by going online to the San Francisco Chronicle. <laughs> and uh, I read about that. It was, it was horrifying of an example where uh, a young man who I think um, uh, so, some people would say a gender nonconformist, I think that's one term that's been used, who was uh, refusing to conform to either male or female. Um, conventions, was attacked by uh, a young man, two years younger, 16, uh, and set on fire, actually. Quite, quite horrific. And um, you know, both of them clearly had views of certain kinds, right? And it was the, you know, a very narrow view that led to the, that was connected with the attack in some way. And so, it's, it's complex, you know, it, it's really, is actually, uh, uh, we could say it's, a, it's a, an example which uh, to, permits us to go deeply on this question. It really raises a lot of different questions about views, you know. Um, clearly, uh, you know, and in the Buddhist tradition, there are very clear ethics, right? They're about non-harming. Yep. It's very clear, there's this clear sense, harming is... Uh, wrong or, or un, you know, is not okay or sometimes unskillful. And uh, how, do we, how do we make sense of that? Is that attachment to a view, right, and so forth? And how do we sort out these different issues? So it's, um, I think, I think uh, how do I, and how do I do that in like a minute or two? <laughs> Another question. Or how do we do that briefly? Um, and so I think it's, it's, um, it's an example which is a, a very challenging example because I think if we, uh, we could, um, and, and you also gave the medical example where, you can go into all the detail, but in certain situations clearly it's the right thing, let's say someone's on medication, a person doesn't take medication, there are consequences, right? And there, and, you know, is, is, is that simply a view or is, isn't that the truth or, you know, what's, what's going on here? Right, so I think I've got your, your, your question. So it's, um, okay, 
So I will leave you with these for the next. No. <laughs> for these deep, important questions. But how do we, and how do we sort those out briefly? Um, I think we still, you know, we, we do. We while we we also take an approach here that intends to have universal compassion. You know, so we are interested in what went on for the attacker as well as the person who was attacked. We are interested in that. doesn't excuse it, but we're interested how did that, and I think it's actually a very important question, how did that person come to have those views? Right? How did that person come to have those views? How did, you know, ideally we'd want to know how did that figure in psychologically, socially, etc.? And uh, how did that person get caught in that view, uh, which was really um, denying in some way the humanity of that person, thinking that person was suitable to be killed, presumably, or at least injured, or not, not permitted to live as all humans want to live. So we'd want to know about that. And we'd want to, uh, you know, we'd, we'd uh, want to see, is it, is it skillful? So again, it's, it's, it's interesting, because this is all, this is not, Nihilism. This is not, none of this is saying nothing matters, there's no validity to anything. It can easily slip into that, can't it? You know, this is not about saying nothing matters, there's no validity to anything, one view is as good as another. It's not saying that, right? That's another view, <laughs> actually. And it's a view that the Buddha explicitly criticized, he called it nihilism, right? It's interesting. And, and so, how do we, what does it mean to be skillful? So it seems to be that which helps us to move to um, decrease suffering, to cut through our own suffering, to transform, to realize the deepest human potential. Yeah. Is there a view there? I think so. Is it a skillful view? Yes. When we reach the depths of development, do we cling to that view? No. <laughs> but it is something that is there, right? So it's not nothing. So we have these, we have these sort of provisional views which we follow. And we can question whether we get attached to them. And we can question whether we're using them unskillfully. We can question whether we're using them to not see others' views. But I think, I think the ultimate basis, though, is pragmatic, and it's pointed towards optimal human functioning. But can you feel a little bit of confusion about this? I can feel it in the field, <laughs> so, so to speak. I mean, how many can feel that? Oh, this is conceptually a little bit tricky, <laughs> right? I feel that. Uh, okay, maybe let me just take maybe one or two more. Maybe our, uh, and then we'll then we'll finish, please. Yeah, is it okay if I just take one more? Yeah, sure. Okay, we'll take one more, and that will that will complete for the day. Yeah. I, I just find it sort of ironic or something when you're entertaining a view when when, that, when your mind's occupied with that. You're not viewing then at that time. You know, when you're when you're entertaining. Well, this is how I see things. Yeah. At that moment, you're not seeing. Yeah. And it's, it, it's sort of, 
more 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 reflections yeah no it, it's interesting i think one one thing you're saying is distinguishing between when we're attending more conceptually and when we're attending more experientially and i think we can actually see through a lens so to speak and that's kind of there's a there's a conceptual view and we're also experiencing but when we're focused on the view talking about it or thinking about it that's operating in a conceptual mode and it's not experientially we're not seeing the world as it were through that view you know, so that, yeah what we're what we're asleep as far as being in touch with your sensory experience we're not in touch with sensory experience that can be valuable obviously to reflect on the concepts but yeah it's it's um, it's it's different than actually experiencing um, okay so Shall I rescue us from the brink of conceptual confusion? <laughs> uh, please, please. So, um, you know, it's a good koan. I think, I think it actually can be helpful for learning to not have things in a tidy package. Okay? That's where I come. Okay, that, that takes care of that. <laughs> it could... It can be helpful for learning to actually be interested. Not having a tidy package. And let me say, look into this. And inquire. You, I mentioned three practices. One is noticing one's top five or top ten views. And the second and third are more looking at views in practice. Noticing when you have a different view than someone and there's some charge, inquire. And the third was, and these are just suggestions. You may have other ways that you want to look into it. The third was to listen to people with other views and see what that experience is like. Try to open, try to really bring out that quality of listening, as well listening beneath the surface, more emotionally, empathically, and so forth. But I think more broadly, take this as a, a place to look more deeply. How do we sort this out? How do I make sense of some of those apparent conundrums? Like, uh, what's the place of a sense of some sense of right and wrong? Do I give up right and wrong if I'm really questioning views? I don't think so. But maybe we hold it less tightly. That I can say. Yeah, that for sure. And we don't we don't think so much of absolutes. And we maybe we say this, you know, this is skillful. But we don't, you know, in the example of the horrific example, we don't, we don't throw away the humanity of the uh, attacker. We don't do that, which is easy to do. You know, right and wrong can be a reason for saying, again, it's using the model of the aim is to cut through ignorance as opposed to identify good and evil. If right and wrong is aligned with good and evil, then we don't do throw away the humanity. We, can, we might. If it's aligned with the quest to overcome ignorance, then we're concerned with how someone could apparently be so ignorant. We're concerned about that, how that could manifest, what were the personal influences, social influences, and so forth. So coming back to that model of working to transform ignorance as the basic model can give us some perspective, I think, on that too. But mostly uh, look into it. See what you find. And I don't come back for three weeks. You have three weeks to do it. (laughs)
Okay. So thank you for the great inquiry here, and to be continued. Okay. Thank you. And may uh, we conclude as usual by inviting, uh, in this way, the traditional dedication of merit. May the fruits of our time together be valuable to us, be valuable to those with whom we're in contact, and ultimately. May these fruits be offered out into the world for the benefit of all. So, thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.